Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. And then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language of people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. That's as far as I'm going to read. Lord, I thank you for the grace, Lord. I thank you for your word that is spirit and in truth. And I ask, God, that you'd help me not only to rightly divide the word of truth, but to be an available servant so that through me and into our hearts and ears, we could be found conformed to the image of our Lord. There's so many voices in this world, so many things said about others, so many things said about ourselves. And by and large, let God be true and every man a liar. By and large, the heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all things who can understand it. By and large, on the tongues of man, so says Romans 3, is a lie. But God, in your word is truth. Your word is like honey to my lips. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage, you would give us the grace to rightly divide the word of truth. You said in your word that a fresh spring can't come from a salt source. God, would you let that spring forth, that out of our bellies would begin to flow torrents of living water. And this he spoke concerning the Spirit, says John. And so, Lord, heal our hearts and forgive our sins. And because we're in a conflict with the enemy, unseen, immature people make other people the enemy. Immature people. But men and women of wisdom know that the real enemy is the devil himself. And so, Lord, I pray that you would keep that perspective not for fear's sake, but for wisdom's sake, and that we begin to encounter these passages with a confidence that you're giving it to us to do battle, not against man, but against the enemy that has deceived man. So thank you, Lord, for your word. Take your glory. Put the blood of Jesus Christ upon me and this house. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, three times in the passage in Revelation in chapter 14, it has this phrase, another angel. Right there, what we read in verse 6, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, proclaiming the eternal gospel. Later on in verse 8 of the same chapter, it says, and another angel, a second one, following, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, the, the, she may, who made the nations drink the wine of the passions of her sexual immorality. And the third time it says in the passage is in verse 9, again, it says, another angel, a third, followed, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on his forehead uh, or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of God's wrath. And it goes on to talk about that. But these angels are seen throughout the book of Revelation. You've probably picked up on that. But they're not randomness. In fact, he says another angel, which seems to indicate another one of the same type as before, which begs the question, what are the ones that came before? And in fact, in Revelation in chapter 8, previously, flip my Bible quickly here, in verse 2, it says, then I saw seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets who were given to them. Remember, he's now getting ready to open up the seals on that title to deed of the earth, that seven-sealed deed that was presented there in heaven in chapter 5. And Jesus is opening them, and he's going to open up the seventh seal, so the text says. And I saw them, and in verse 3, and another angel, there it is, the same word. Another angel came and stood at the altar of the golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints, the golden altars before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God and from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Later on in chapter 10 in verse 1, it says, Then I saw, here it is, another angel. Allos, not heteros, that's another discussion. Then I saw another angel, angel, mighty angel, coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like the pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. He set his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land. Uh, you remember the passage. I could read it to you. But there he proclaimed and lifted his right hand to the heaven and swore by him who created the heavens and the earth. It was a, it was a, a foreshadowing of the, of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth, so we found. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever. 
So says the text, this angel. And then finally we come to this passage, not finally, but next we come to this passage in chapter 14, where it says to us again, it says, Then I saw, behold, a Mount Zion, excuse me, I'm reading the wrong verse, verse 6, Then I saw another angel following directly overhead with the, as we just read, the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell upon the earth. And so these angels, they seem to have a function that, number one, they're there to proclaim the coming judgment of the Lord. Can you gather that from the text that we read? They're there to proclaim this coming judgment, but also to proclaim that through that judgment that his manifest sovereignty would be placed upon this earth. Thus, the angel in chapter 10, he comes and sets his foot on the land and the sea and swears by him who lives forever and ever, basically the man on the moon and saying, look, this is ours. Although I'm not sure that happened anymore, but that's another story. <laughs> and these angels proclaim God's judgment and his sovereignty over an, ex, an ex, uh, uh, expecting judgment that's going to happen. And the message that this angel proclaims at this point in time is interesting in and of itself, which is a discussion in and of itself, but the message in terms of its qualitative uh, substance says in verse 7, And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. Now think in your minds. He's proclaiming what the text says, the eternal gospel, right? If it's the eternal gospel, has it ever changed? If it's the eternal gospel, is it the one that is the same, like the name of Jesus himself, the same yesterday, today, and forevermore? So whatever the gospel is, according to the scripture, it doesn't change. That's the old phrase that I used to say, if it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. There's no such thing as new news. New news is only old news to new people. (laughs) But there's no such thing as new truth. Truth is truth. Truth is established. It's old. And the gospel that changes not, not unlike the name of Christ himself, is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so when the book of Revelation describes it as the everlasting gospel, we understand very quickly that this gospel, like the name of Christ himself, has not, does not, will not change. Makes us beg the question. Sometimes we we preach the gospel as the ostensible benefits that are going to be accrued to us for accepting it, and I'm quite happy for those benefits. You know, you'll go to heaven instead of hell. That's great. I love it. Thank you. Your sins will be forgiven. Thank you very much. I like that part. You'll be reconciled with God and you have fellowship with him. Yep, love that. But those are all fringe benefits. What is the purpose of the gospel? Because whatever the purpose of the gospel is, it has to align with what he says here is the eternal gospel. And if the gospel that we accept, though those things I just said are true, but if the gospel that we accept doesn't align itself with this message of the eternal gospel, our understanding to our own harm is limited and unfulfilled. It's not complete. So the gospel, is, it seems to our kind of Americanized Western Christianity kind of thing, which has its good and its bad in it, it's not all bad, But the voice that he says when he proclaims this gospel that hasn't changed, fear God. I mean, think this through. How does this align with your best life now? (laughs) It seems to be discordant. But it's not. Because we're missing the point of the gospel. I'm not saying you haven't heard the gospel. I'm not saying you're not born again. That is not for me to judge. Without actually knowing you. (laughs) But he says, fear God. And give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. And so keeping it, trying to keep it simple, I should say, there's three things that he says this gospel included. Number one, fear God. Number two, give him glory. And number three, worship him. And again, this this idea of the gospel being Fear God, give him glory, worship him, goes twang, because Jesus died upon a cross. And praise God for that. If he didn't, that's the epical moment in creation of all of human history. It hinges around that moment. Praise God for that. But that was a means to an end. That was not the end. Our gospel is not just a historical event. Yes, do this in remembrance of me at communion. But that's because it is to begin to play out in our lives. So the message he proclaims is three things, as I said, fear God, give him glory, worship him. And the reason we should fear God and give him glory, according to the text, is because 
the hour of his judgment has come. The word hour doesn't mean it's going to last for 60 minutes and then it's done. It means the time period. The reason you should fear God, the reason you should give him glory is this. The hour of his judgment could come. In other words, the motivation for you to give him glory and the motivation for you to actually honor him or fear him is because he is the judge and he's going to come and judge all things. Number one. Number two, the third point, worship him. Why should I worship him? I know I should fear him and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come. Whatever that means, we don't know yet. But the reason I should worship him, so the text says, is because he created everything. The Bible talks about the people worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Everything in Romans chapter 1 is indicating that he deserves our honor and glory and praise because he made all things. Remember the joke I told you years ago? The scientists are getting so advanced in bourgeoisie. And they uh, decide that they can do anything that God can do. And so they challenge God to a context. And they get all their test tubes and their chemicals and all their stuff together. And they said, all right, God, let's go. And God looks at them and says, nah, you get your own stuff. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> he made it all. And this becomes the basis. So again, the reason we give him glory, the reason we fear him is because the hour of judgment has come. Number three, the third point, worship him because he created everything. And so it begs the question is, what is the fear of God? What is the glory of God? Or to give him, what does it mean to give him glory? And we kind of read this as being like different ways to like sing songs. <laughs> what are you doing? I'm worshiping him. I'm giving him glory. Glory. But what does it mean to fear God? And typically people, and I've said this to people, I remember years ago when I was riding out in the ambulance, I'm probably 30 years ago now, and this question was posited to me, and I'm probably, you know, 20, 21. And the guy said, well, I have a problem with this. What in the world does it mean to fear God? I don't think that's, the, you know, I'm supposed to be afraid of him. And my answer to him in my 20-year-old, 21-year-old mind was, well, it kind of more has the idea with honoring him, reverencing him. And while it's true that fearing God does mean to reverence him, it's true that fearing God does mean to honor him, there's a problem with that. The passage itself says the reason you should fear God is because his judgment is coming. And so while it is true that there is homage and reverence, I mean, it's like the atheist kid who's back when Richard Dawkins, who's now proven to be a complete moron, he won't even debate actual scholars. He just debates 22-year-old students in college in his class. Oh, you're brilliant. I could beat him in a debate. I would gladly debate the guy. He would never debate me because he doesn't debate people that actually know what they're talking about. But when Richard Dawkins was famous in what is his book, The God Delusion, this kid that was really following Christ and then read Dawkins' book and was enlightened, he comes to me and starts arguing and saying, well, you know, God is this way. You know, and he used the, the whole situation with Elijah and the bears and they come out and you go, hey, Baldy. And he says, look, you know, the bear comes out and mauls the kids, which is a complete misrepresentation any scholar would slay that to pieces, what he said. I hope you know what I'm talking about, otherwise I just left you confused. And this 26-year-old kid that used to walk with the Lord now is convinced that Dawkins is the smartest man on earth. Him and, listen, Richard Dawkins is the smartest man on earth. Just ask him, he'll tell you so. <laughs> but he said, you know, if God is a good God, he, why would he do these such evil things? My point to the kid was, Listen, kid, here I am, calling a 26-year-old man a kid. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm getting old. I told him, let's just pretend God is wicked and evil. Let's pretend everything Dawkins says about him is true. You'd be a fool to rebel against him. I mean, are you going to talk out against the mafia boss? You're going to say, yeah, you, 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 you. if he's that evil, you'd be an idiot to talk that way to him or about him. He's just going to, you know, Danny boy's got a message for you. <laughs> You're done. <laughs> and it's completely logically inconsistent. And so he says, fear God. Yes, it means to reverence him, but it actually means to fear him. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 4 through 7, listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, nothing more they can do to you. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, 
has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you're more valuable than many sparrows. And so we're told to fear God because he can cast you into hell. And then we're told, you say, well, that's ridiculous. He would cast people into hell. Again, mafia boss, think it through. But he's not willing that any should perish. He is faithful and true to every man. He will give every man the opportunity. Maybe this morning's your opportunity. <laughs> Maybe one of several. And then we're told not to fear him because we're more valuable than many sparrows. And I think the proper function of fear in those verses that we just read is to warn us that it's eternally deadly to fear man. The Bible says the fear of man is a trap and a snare. And people choose to fear man instead of God. In other words, you make decisions based upon man's opinion instead of God's opinion. In other words, fear the consequences of God's judgment, not man. And let it drive you to, to be unafraid of that God, but only through the presence of Jesus Christ himself. Let it drive you away the fear of man into a trust in Jesus so that you can realize that you are more valuable than sparrows. And therefore, he says, fear not. In fact, later on in the Bible, it talks about the fear of the Lord. But as I looked at these verses in the scripture, most of the Bible verses that talk about the fear of the Lord don't actually tell me what it is. They tell me the benefits of it. You know, if you fear the Lord, your life is going to be blessed. Great, but what is the fear of the Lord? Let me give you an example. In Proverbs in chapter 1, verse 7, fear the Lord, or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Anybody here this morning despise wisdom and instruction? <laughs> the Bible tells me who you are. <laughs> There's no fools here. You wouldn't be here otherwise. In Proverbs 9, verse 10, it tells me again the benefits of the fear. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Great, that's the great benefit. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Psalm 110, or 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. Psalm 25, I mean, it goes on and on. The Lord confides in those who fear him. You want to know who God shares his secrets with? Those who fear him. It's completely opposite of the way we think. It's almost like my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. They're beyond your ways of figuring out, so don't try. <laughs> but he confides in those who fear him. Psalm 34, verse 9, the fear of the Lord. Fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. Interesting. Ecclesiastes 12, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. And again, I love these verses. They're encouragements for me to walk in the fear of the Lord, but I still come to the end of the day and I say, okay, but what is the fear of the Lord? <laughs> Until I found a verse in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, and it actually seems to define for us, maybe there's several others, this is the only one I found, but it seems to define for us exactly what the fear of the Lord is. Listen to how it reads. Therefore, writes Paul, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence or fear of God. And if I look at that verse more than a superficial passing, I look at it with a bit more intentionality to understand the heart of God and the word itself, I find very quickly that the fear of the Lord, number one, it drives us to purify ourselves. It means seeking to be cleansed from anything that defiles my body or my spirit. I mean, anybody in the room here this morning ever been tempted before? Ever? Temptation to sin is not sin. Look, I can't believe I was tempted. If temptation disqualifies you, Jesus can't be the Messiah. Right? You know, I can't believe I had those crazy thoughts in my head. I believe it. The Bible says your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Having a weird thought doesn't disqualify you. But the Christian comes in and says, Lord, I just had that crazy thought. Oh, my gosh. And hormones got involved. You ever have that one? Woo! Lord Jesus, save me from that. You ever wake up from a dream that you're like, I can't believe I just dreamed that? 
I learned a long time ago not to walk in self-condemnation. I learned a long time ago to say, Lord Jesus, if that's in me, please forgive me. But please help me to never do that. There it is. There it is. And temptation to sin is not sin. But the fear of the Lord, he says, actually says that I don't want anything in my body that's going to defile you, defile me. I've seen in my own life at times where I've had to recommit myself to the Lord and say, God, I have slowly allowed these things into my life. And soon enough, you ever experience this? They don't feel bad anymore. If you can look back on a behavior you're doing that, you know, I don't know, 20 years ago, you said, man, that's horrible behavior, but now it's not so bad. You've backslidden. And I'm not saying you're unborn again. That's not for me to understand. What I'm saying is, is that you are not in the place of the wisdom of the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord tells me that there are anything, it's sinful behaviors, impure thoughts, all these harmful attitudes. And the first thing 2 Corinthians 7.1 tells me, it is involves a desire to live in a moral purity, not in my own strength. He saves me so I can become somebody I otherwise couldn't be. He doesn't save me so I can continue to be filthy. I am filthy, and I can get filthy. But the blood of Jesus isn't there to just kind of encourage bad behavior. It's there to say, yes, I forgive you. Yes, I cleanse you. I mean, sometimes we come to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. That's the easy part because of his hard part, the sacrifice on Calvary's cross. And because of Calvary's cross, he can forgive me of my sins that fast. But to save me or rescue me from the dominion of those sins over my life, that's a committed process where I have to yield myself to his lordship. I mean, how many people really enjoy, I mean, it's like eating junk candy. You first pop it in your mouth and it's delicious, right? I go through these things where I do not eat candy at all until I do. <laughs> and when I do, you know, I think, I think we should start a class action lawsuit against Costco for selling those Sanders salted chocolates for so cheap. <laughs> because you can't just eat one. You pop one into your mouth, and it's like, oh, boy, that was too good. It went too fast. And it goes to two. And I can eat a good five or six or seven of them. And the problem is I don't process sugar well. <laughs> I pay for it. Rashes. I get rashes because I eat too much sugar. Great motivation. Uh, take the curse of inflammation as a blessing. <laughs> because as a consequence, I've learned to enjoy. You should see my morning shakes. I mean... Every single, you go down the health food aisle and they have all those powdered like mushrooms and powdered beets and all organic and powdered, I don't know, anything, any, turmeric, I, just anything, black pepper. I, 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 I put a mango base with a couple of pieces of frozen avocado, some kale on top of it, mix it with every single powder you can imagine that I can find. And then like a teaspoon of each, uh, some of the powder, I have no idea what they do, but it's, it's organic, so you know, just got to go in there. I put water in it, no milk. And believe it or not, you actually begin to enjoy it, but I don't enjoy it for the sake of it. I enjoy it for the, what it produces. What I enjoy for the sake of it is the Sanders chocolate, right? And that's exactly my experience with processing sin. It leaves rashes. It leaves an irritation. That's why we say sin is its own reward. You don't have to beat somebody up when they fall into sin. Sin is its own reward. You're going you're gonna to get the rashes, don't worry, figuratively speaking, unless I'm not. <laughs> like the poster I saw when I was at Whitworth, chlamydia is not a flower. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's true. <laughs> I was dating a gal years ago, and I knew it wasn't the right thing to pursue any longer because she sat there and looked at me in the eye with, and she said, herpes are awesome. Bye. <laughs> Goodbye. I just have to water the pigs and, and feed the lawn. <laughs> Bye. But the reality is, is that this, this fear of the Lord becomes something, Lord, I want this to actually be a temple, not my own effort, not my own ability, but through confession of the blood of Jesus Christ, yielding to your authority and lordship so that you can be in me what I otherwise couldn't be. But number two, he tells us that holiness, in 2 Corinthians 7.1, the fear of the Lord compels us to pursue holiness, which isn't self-righteousness. 
I think Sandpoint has enough of that. It's like Sandpoint has two groups of, of Christianity. One that has no beliefs in anything whatsoever, and it's kind of new age. And the other one that are so legalistic and priggish that I'm thinking, you know, I don't want to meet you ever in any situation. I don't want to share anything with you ever because you have perfected gossip into your prayer meetings. I don't trust you. And this community is bewitched. It is bewitched. And it's in the churches. And these people truly believe that they're serving the Lord by tearing, stabbing, backbiting, slandering the servants of the Lord. It is demonic. It is demonic. That is not holiness. The fear of the Lord compels us, though, to pursue holiness. It means striving to be consecrated and dedicated to the Lord. We imitate his character by his grace and power. We live in a way that manifests his righteousness and his love. His, what is his righteousness? It's his moral character. How, what God would do in a situation. So use the example of gossip. Say, what, you say, well, this is righteous indignation. Really? The wrath of man brings about the righteousness life that God requires, unlike what the Bible says? Because James says the wrath of man does not bring about the righteous life God requires. So which one is it? Well, this is an exception in this situation. So you violate scripture in the exception? You're violating the word of God to justify a sinful behavior? Well, if I don't do this, they're going to get away with it. You don't know God very well. Are they hurting somebody else? Then you deal with that in a certain way. Are they going to kill themselves? You deal with that in a certain way. But is your judgment based upon a self-righteous gossip? Be careful. Because you think you stand, but the Bible says you are going to fall. If I was the devil, I wouldn't attack my servants, but I would attack God's. All you have to do is look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. Backbiting, gossip, slander, immorality. But don't worry, God told me to do this. I literally have had people in this community tell me that. You're not listening to the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This is not holiness. Holiness is not about being perfect, but about a sincere effort, a yieldedness to be Christ-like, but recognizing I can't do it. Holiness simply means set-apartness, technically, but it has the idea of completeness, wholeness. Anybody here enjoy being incomplete? Or do you want to be whole? From the old, uh, what is it, a Gaelic word? Uh, halig. Wholeness, holiness, halig. It's the idea of wholeness, completeness. Put together. And man is fractured. He has a body, mind, and a spirit. His spirit is jacked up. It's affected his mind and plays itself out in his body. But the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ comes to live in his spirit so that he can fix his mind, set my mind upon the things above, and my mind can now live that out in the body. But the problem is now I have two natures, a sin nature and the spirit of Jesus Christ. And I have to choose, it's called repentance, to follow Jesus when my heart is telling me to just trash him. You're either going to be a spiritual man or a carnal man, but the problem is the religious man that's not truly connected to God thinks he's spiritual by submitting to his own mind because it's so real. And therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of the reverence for God. And so I think we understand what the fear of the Lord is. Here's the gospel. Fear God because the hour of his judgment has come. In other words, if you knew, and this was a motivation for years for me, if I knew that Jesus was coming back right now, would I be saying this right now? If I knew he was coming back right now, would I be talking about them in this way? If I knew he was coming back right now, would I be hanging out with them at all? If I knew that he was coming back, would I be doing this with my body? Well, no. And therefore, he said, fear God. What's my motivation? <clears throat> the hour of his judgment has come. There it is. Number two, give him glory. 
Now, again, this is one of those words in the Bible that we get rather confused on because we've kind of uh, adopted many connotative meanings. You know the difference between connotative and denotative? A denotative definition is like the dictionary definition of the word. The connotative definition is the definition that society has adopted. And so we have all these connotative understandings of what glory means. You know, it's like the preacher gets really excited and he's like, ah, glory, <laughs> hallelujah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and, and he's giving glory unto God. Or some, I've got a hope in glory land. So glory now is a place I go someday. Or glory is something that I say when I'm really excited. Or glory is another substitute word for singing songs. Come on, guys. I was at a, what was it? It was a youth for Christ. No, it was a, it's one of those major youth organizations. It was at Eastern Washington University. They had asked me to come in and speak to their uh, group. And then they invited me to their uh, retreat, to be the guest speaker at their retreat. And the worship leader was going up there and giving this definition of what glory was. Needless to say, he didn't like me because I have a responsibility to correct error. And he basically correlated glory to being singing songs louder to God. Come on, give him glory. Well, I agree with the statement, give him glory. But you're using it in a way that is not what the Bible's saying. And I tried to do it carefully without shaming him publicly, but... Sometimes I lack the graces that are necessary for that. I'm not trying to be mean. I guess I just naturally, I come by it naturally. <laughs> and actually, that's not what glory means at all. Glory is not a destination. It's not a substitute for worship. It's not a word that I use when I'm really excited. Oh, glory. <laughs> what in the world is glory? And like the fear of the Lord, you'd probably be happy to know that it actually has a definition that's consistent in Scripture. I actually was spending time on, I, I, I get on, uh, people are afraid of the artificial intelligence. I, I, I use it to, argue, to have a debate partner. You ever do that? I don't know, I do that. I want to say, hey, this is what I think, and then it responds to me, and it corrects me, and I say, no, that's not accurate. That verse does not say this, and I expect it, and I have won 100% of my de debates with it on biblical things, not on other things. Finally, he comes around and said, well, actually, you're right. <laughs> I said, what do you think is about this glory? And he gave the typical answers, this he, meaning the devil, but that's another story. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you think about this? And I have all these debates. I was going to send them over to Greg Devoyne because I said, he was saying, man, I heard you could win $2,500 if you can uh, have this. They're having a contest. You can actually you know, win a debate. And all that. I, I do it all the time, Greg. You just have to know what you're talking about. I haven't sent it over to Greg, if you're watching. He does watch. I, I'm going to send it over to you some point in time. I saved it somewhere. Several debates I've had with it. But I entered in my understanding of glory, and for the first time, it complimented me. <laughs> it said, you actually have a very insightful way of looking at that. And da-da-da-da-da-da-da. What did I write? This. I said, to glorify something or someone is to see the thing as it is. Now, now you, have to, you have to put aside your understanding of glory right now and go back to the Bible. In fact, let, before I even read what I wrote to it, let me read to you a verse that Jesus said that is completely confusing, if you have the wrong definition of glory. In John chapter 13, and verse 31, he says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. What does that mean? He's going to his cross. He's going to die. And he says, now, speaking of that moment, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. I'm glorified, but you're glorified in me. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Who understood that? <laughs> Not a single person. Why? Because it doesn't make sense. If you don't know what glorification means. And glorification is this word that's, and I'll read what I wrote here in a second, glorification is this word that has all sorts of depth to it, but it's actually pretty simple. It's in the doctrine of our salvation, isn't it? Justification, sanctification, glorification. We understand justification at the cross. A lot of scholars will say, well, it's past, present, and future. Justification happened at the cross, past, present, well, that's true. Technically, I would say it's past and present, but that's another story. But keeping it simple, past, present, sanctification, that is God setting us apart to himself. But one day we will be glorified. By the way, we are glorified right now, but only in a little tiny drop. 
That's why it's not a perfect example, but past, present, and future, generally speaking. We're glorified now, but we're not seen as we will be. We're seen in part. And the doctrine of the glorification has to do with the doctrine of the resurrection because the body is fundamentally changed at glorification so that man as man can be seen again. Your sin nature has misrepresented the nature of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's that word again. What does this mean? Are, is glory used in any way that we want, at any time that we want, in any passage we want? The answer is no. All of these passages are connected. So all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, sin is misrepresenting the nature of God. Why is that a problem? Because when man was created, what's the definition of a man? We say a man, well, which is a good question for today, isn't it? <laughs> but I'm talking about mankind. <laughs> it's like when my oldest was born, I said, I put the stem on the apple. I told that to the church at Calvary Spokane. <laughs> put the stem on the apple. <laughs> That's a man, right? What's a man? X, Y? Yeah, biologically. What's a man? The Bible says a man is in the image and in the likeness of God. In other words, you would look at man and see God. Not that man is God, but man becomes a perfect reflection of God. Man is in the image and the likeness of God, Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. But when man sinned, let me ask you a question, has God ever sinned? If man was made to be a reflection of God and then man sinned, would you say that man is accurately or inaccurately at that point in time representing God? When man sinned, he misrepresents God because he was made to be a representative and ambassador of Christ. When he sinned, he misrepresents God, and therefore sin is falling short of the, the glory of God. Sin is misrepresenting who God is. But because man is made to be in the image and the likeness of God so that you would look at God, man and see God, but when man sinned, he felt to be that representation so that by our misconducts, we misrepresent God to the creation and thus people slander God because of us. So the Christian is one who has been reconciled to God, justified. He's been sanctified. One day he'll be glorified and what we are be has, will be has yet to be seen, he tells us in Romans 8. And the whole creation is longing for that day because then they're going to rejoice because now man is a man again. Oh, by the way, did you know that how many men have ever existed in all of history? You say, well, in this room, there's lots. Hey, peace, Katza. Oh, no, oh, sorry, I thought she, she's like, no, she, she's saying two, <laughs> two. How many men have ever existed? The Bible says there's the first Adam, the first man, and the second Adam, the second man. How many men, by the definition of image and likeness of God, has there ever existed? Biblically, just two. Now, don't show hands, women. How many of you would agree with me? <laughs> That's right. Amen. There's no men here. <laughs> the Bible says Adam was the first man, but he fell into sin and fell short of the glory of God and passed that sin nature down onto us, jerk. And so as second Adam came, he's the federal head of a new race of man so that we can be born again into his kingdom so that by having him as our head, we can actually be part of his race. So the Spirit of God comes inside of us as a deposit, guaranteeing what will be. Romans 8 says, the creation's waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Oh, by the way, we haven't been manifested yet because we haven't received a resurrection body yet because it's only in the resurrection body that will be without sin that we can accurately represent God again. And that's why as a Christian, when you screw up, not if, if it's public, you know, you get mad at your kids and who hasn't, right? I don't. I spoil them, if anything. <laughs> but you get mad. And if you miss, I remember my oldest son got mad at him when he was young. I always tried to be very careful how he spoke to them. Well, I know, my, 
Well, no, I'm not going to say it because then I owe them five dollars. Never mind. Okay, so my oldest son, it doesn't count. My oldest too. I don't know. I just. I told them that every time I mentioned their name, I give them five dollars. So on the way to church this morning, Hans, dang it. <laughs> he said, I want you to mention my name 20 times. <laughs> no. But I remember going to my oldest and saying, son, I'm sorry for getting mad. I shouldn't have done that because I misrepresented God to him. I'm not God. But I claim to be his servant. And therefore, a Christian in confessing his sins can represent God even when he failed. Because now I'm representing God by saying, I screwed up. I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? You don't have to give him a theological answer. Well, in the scripture, the Bible says all of sin have fallen short of the glory of God. And I misrepresented the nature and the character of our God. You know, you don't have to do that. But you can say, you know, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. And the problem is some of us in the room have so much of a dead account. Really, naming specific sins won't help you at all. <laughs> it's to go to them and say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That's it. And in that you begin to represent God in the midst of your failure. See how that works? So if I was going to look at the word glorification, the word glorification, if you were to replace it, and we used to have a Bible college, I said this to the students, I'd say, listen, um, replace the word glorification with the word see, S-E-E. Because to, to, to see, and then all of a sudden, the, the verse in uh, John chapter 13, which I turned away from, John chapter 13, verse 31, makes sense. Listen, now is the Son of Man, well, I'll read it in its original, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify himself in himself and glorify him at once. Ay, 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 what did you just say? Replace that with the word S-E-E. And listen to how it reads. Now is the Son of Man seen. Jesus is going to the cross. You really want to see what my heart is, what I'm like? Now is the Son of Man seen. And God is seen in him. And if God is seen in him, God will also see him in himself and glorify him at once and see him at once. What in the world does this mean? If man was created to be in the image and the likeness of God, to see man is to see God. Not that man is God, but man is a representation of God. That's why Jesus, in his humanity, not his deity, said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is God, but that was a statement of his humanity as the first, a second Adam, a perfect image and likeness of God. And as man, perfectly representing God, he's fully God, fully man, hypostatic union. And as man, you would look at Jesus and you would see the Father. And that's the way it was meant to be. But Adam sinned, and so you'd look at Adam sinning, and you didn't see the Father. And therefore, the plan of redemption started. The second Adam, to create a new race of man, came. His name was Jesus Christ. He comes to the earth and creates a new race of man that you can be born again into and partake of his kingdom so that he becomes the progenitor of your nature. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. So that by coming to him you begin to be restored to the image and the likeness of God. The thing that you lost, which was the image of God, is replaced, Colossians chapter 1, by Jesus Christ, who it says in Colossians 1, Christ is the image of God. The very thing you lost, the image and the likeness, is the very thing he becomes in the man so that you can begin to once again represent who he is to a world. And when you see man, when man is glorified, when you see man for what he was intended to be, because he was intended to glorify God, you will ipso facto glorify God, see God. And God will be seen in the man. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, or that's 14. He says, men will look at you, Matthew 5, and glorify their Father in heaven. Men will look at you, and see the Father in heaven. I see God alive in a man, even in his failure because of that confession. He never would have done that before, and now he, he does. You know, so many of you in the room, you, you walk under this, this, this boatload of guilt, and it's legitimate. But the way to deal with that 
is through confession first to God. And if he tells you, and I want to have that clarifier, if he tells you to go to them, then and only then go to them and just confess it. Keep it simple. Don't get complicated. Don't try to find out the root causes and your childhood issues and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you will never end that conversation <laughs> with any kind of sense of, of clarity. And it's like my, my father said to me years ago, he goes, you know, we're talking about all these inner child, my inner child and your inner child. He goes, my inner child wants to beat up your inner child. <laughs> You're never going to get to the end of it. But Jesus isn't like that. And it's in that humility. Anybody ever met a humble man they didn't like? I never have. And it's to say, man, I, sh- I should have done that. I shouldn't have said that. Would you forgive me? I have that whole thing I wrote up, and I promised I was going to read to you. It's not appropriate for the time that we have right now. If you want, I'll email it to you. But basically what I said to you is what I wrote. Because man to be seen is to see God. Not that man is God, but he's doing his job. So glorified man will glorify God. And we only do it in part right now, but one day we'll do it fully. And when man is fully restored to what God was intending for man... In the resurrection alone, the whole creation is going to rejoice because finally we got a bunch of sons of God here. You see, I already am a son of God. Yeah, but you haven't been completed. It's as good as done. But how many people have a resurrection body? I mean, just think this through. It's not an insult. It's just a fact, right? It's just a fact. I mean, anybody in the room here comfortable with being in this sin-ridden body for all of eternity? I'm not. I don't want that. I also don't want to die. So if this is a democracy, and it's not, I vote the rapture. But that's a whole other story. (laughs) And why do I give him glory? For the same reason I give him fear. The hour of his judgment has come. And in that context, John chapter 5, the Son of Man judges everything. He's going to put everything right and in its place. In Matthew 25, he says he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. And it's at that moment that man will be what he was intended to be if he is in Christ. If he's in Christ. But the third thing is worship him. In fact, as I'm thinking about worshiping him, I thought to myself quickly, what's the motivation? Why do people come to, to, you know, again, that statement, because the hour of his judgment has come. What's the motivation of coming to Jesus in the first place? You know, the Bible does teach that there's different motivations, or at least in my way of thinking. Oftentimes they're fringe benefits, but nonetheless, Paul the Apostle seems to indicate that, you know, some people are going to come to heaven because they're afraid of going to hell. And so, yeah, if it works, right? <laughs> but the Bible talks about some key verses. Listen to this, Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Same thing I already read in Luke 12, verse 4 and 5. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after have nothing more than they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Who said this? The Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might. Hebrews 10, boy, I tell you, some of you in the room right here this morning, have family members right here. This verse applies. Listen to what it says. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You're saying sinning willfully in the context, I'll grant, and need to teach that it's the idea of deliberately rejecting Jesus for something else. It's trampling the Son of God underfoot. It's saying, Jesus, your sacrifice is enough. I've heard the gospel. Yep, that's it. And then saying, you know what? I don't want that anymore. I want to try something else. And Hebrews says, you need to understand that is willful sinning against the sacrifice of Jesus. There's nothing else that can save you. I've got friends that I'm praying for every day, almost. And they're into the occult or New Age or whatever, family. 
but they also have never really understood. And I'm praying for God's timing and sharing the gospel because you force it on people. It doesn't seem to work for some reason. You got to walk in the spirit. Let God open the door. Walk through it when he does, but don't force the door open. But the context of Hebrews is that if you've received this grace from God, you understand what he's done, and then you willfully choose to go away from it, you're deliberately sinning. Huyas, that's a whole discussion into that. And all you can expect to receive is a fearful judgment because you've rejected the greatest message. In Hebrews 2, what does he say? How shall we escape, escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's the context. You receive this message of the great salvation of Jesus Christ, and you say, yeah, I'm going to try something else now. There's, if Jesus can't convince you, I can't. And Hebrews is warning And so likewise, in Revelation 14, in verse 9, it says, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And so I thought, well, why in the world, what's our motivation to be born again? You guys know these verses. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son. Whosoever would believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You say, well, why should I be born again? Some people are motivated because they want their sins forgiven. It's a good motivation. Other people are, they, they want, or as John 3, 16 actually says, they want a new birth. They want eternal life. They want their sins forgiven. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some people say, well, I just, I just want my sins forgiven. Be great. Other people say, well, I want to be reconciled to God. The fact is sin separates you. And in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 17, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Is that a good motivation? I want to be reconciled to my king. Some people talk about, well, why do you want to be born again? Spiritual transformation. John 3, 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, Verily, truly, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. The new birth changes the heart, the mind, the soul as the Spirit works inside the life of the believer. I think the fifth reason is, why do you want to be born again? And some people have all of these. Some people have one of these. But I want to be adopted into his family. Galatians 4, and verse 4 through 7, this is especially meaningful if you've grown in a condition where that security was not there. And there it says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit calls out, Abba, Father. And there's this deep desire to say, Father, Father. He's all of these things. And as I already alluded to, the liberation from sin, the power of sin. Being born again empowers believers to live a new free life from the dominion, not the presence, but the dominion of sin. Romans 6, 4 states, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might have a new life. What it seems to be the motivation that's given to us here in the passage the fear of hell. When it comes down to it at the last days, he's saying, listen, you need to fear God. You need to give him glory because this earth ain't going to last. Listen, his hour of his judgment, it has come. Now last, what does it mean to worship him? Much quicker, I think. The idea of worshiping God, again, is sometimes conflated into this idea that we're 
singing songs, and nothing wrong with singing songs. If there was, I wouldn't be doing it, right? It's actually a quite useful tool. I had a woman contact me this morning, God bless her, good question. She said, hey, do you guys have um, electric guitars in your service? And she's like, but I knew what she was saying. She's saying, I'm sick and tired of the show, the, the, the row, 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 type of thing. And I said, usually we just have piano and or acoustic guitar, and wouldn't you know it? This morning we had piano and acoustic. <laughs> hey, we're everything. And Matt said this morning, he goes, yeah, but you didn't, but, but you didn't mention our fog machines and our strobing lights. <laughs> I said, yeah, she only asked about the guitar. <laughs> But what does it mean to worship him in the Greek language, which I told you before, Greek is like my underwear. It's useful, but should rarely be seen. (laughs) But in this case, it's helpful because it's the Greek word proskuneo. And it comes from a compound of two words, pros, meaning toward or before, and kuneo, meaning to kiss. And when you combine the two words into proskuneo, It conveys the idea of showing profound reverence and homage and often included prostrating oneself, bowing down, and performing like Mary of Magdala, acts of adoration before someone or something of great importance or authority. And so we see this in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying... Revelation 5, 14, all the four living creatures said, excuse me, amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Revelation 7, 11, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. You know, sometimes you're going to face situations in life, and you're going to be kind of confronted with, am I going to attack God and hate his people Or am I going to get on my face and say, God, Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord, I don't understand. One day I will, but I trust you. There are times, and I've learned this in my own life, it's easy for me to worship him when everything's going my way. And by the way, when things are going your way, enjoy it. (laughs) Don't don't be, you know, I'm going to hate my life because things are going my way. No, 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 no. It, all, it comes to all of us. And if you're in a season where things are just good and blessed, thank him, love him, enjoy it. You know, go on the lake, go fishing in Alaska, jerk, you know. <laughs> do, do whatever. Enjoy it. But that doesn't test my heart towards God. But the Bible talks about a sacrifice of praise. You know when it's worthy, I think at least, is when it's hard. Say, God, I don't feel like singing this morning, but I offer up my praise. Lord, I don't feel like honoring you. I don't feel like talking to you. I'm kind of mad at you, and that is my sin. Please forgive me. And Lord, you are glorious. You are a great king. I don't understand what you did or why you're doing this, but I praised your name. So faith evidently has to be mixed with worship until we stand before him face to face. Would you agree? Right? Faith has to be mixed in worship. And this word that's proskuneo is not the same word in Romans 12. Remember Romans 12, present your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your reasonable act of worship. It's actually not the same word, but actually those words are used kind of interchangeably. Letreo, worship, and proskuneo, worship. What do you mean? Prove it to me, gladly. Matthew 4.10, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6 to the devil, remember? Bow down, worship me, I'll give you everything you see. Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What was the word he used there? Worship, proskuneo, in Matthew 4.10. But in the parallel passage, in Luke's gospel, chapter 4 and verse 8, the parallel passage uses latreo to convey the same message. Latreo, therefore, emphasizes the formal religious service or ministry offered to God, including sacred duties or rituals, doing something, playing a part. But in contrast, proskuneo gets the heart of a personal thing in the heart, bowing down before the Lord as an expression of reverence. And both words are used to emphasize the worship and the service that should be directed exclusively to God. 
And in Matthew 4.10 and Luke 4.8, Jesus reminds believers to worship and to serve God alone and not to bow down to any other entity. What's taking place in Revelation 13? They're worshiping proskuneo, the devil. The Bible says in the last days it's going to be known for, you know, target. I mean, sorry, uh, worshiping Satan. I mean, wasn't that the thing that's being boycotted now? Having like hell Satan kind of garbage in like rainbow colors and mixing them together. It's open, isn't it? It would never happen. It's happening and it's going to get worse. And if pragmatism is your God, you will bow down to the God of this world. Because the Bible tells us there's going to be a very short season where it's going to be very advantageous to worship him. But the consequence of worshiping him, as we already read in chapter 14, and the third angel is evident. And so what do we do? We have to reconcile the gospel in Revelation 14 away from the social gospel away from the ostensible benefits that are going to be accrued to me if I accept this message, though there are ostensible benefits. And I have to seek to align it with something that is consistent with the everlasting gospel. This is fear God. Give him glory because judgment's coming. Worship him because he made everything, the heavens and the earth. Romans 1 talks about that. And so I fear God. I don't want to honor you and reverence you. There's things in me that are not like you. I don't want them there. I'm powerless to remove them, but you're powerful to remove them. All I can do is present my sin to you and ask you to deal with it, but I can't deal with it. So God, I ask for your mercy, your grace. Please deliver me from this pattern in my life that has started to take root, that has drifted me further away from you, and it's not what I was 20 years ago. And now, Lord, I need you to bring my heart back again. I need help in this. I fear you, and I want to give you glory, and I know that that's a promise, and I know I have a sin nature, and that you've given me a deposit of your nature within me so that sometimes people can see you in me, but most of the time not, so that when they don't see me being a representative of you, let me humble myself and confess it as sin so that through even my confession they can see you, and thus, ipso facto, I can glorify you. And the motivation for me doing this is the fear of God, that is the fear of God and the glory, the motivation for doing this is your judgment's coming. And I know that I'm not going to be judged to hell because of Jesus, but I know the judgment's coming on the earth. And Lord, let my life, in other words, mean something. It's my mother texted me this morning. She said, the longer we've lived, me, me and your father, our prayer every morning is, Lord, help us to finish the race. Because you don't have to. You can get very bitter very fast. Help us to finish the race. I figured, dang, I'm 50. Some of you wish you were 50. I wish I was 20. Eh. <laughs> so, you know. Actually, I take that back. I don't wish I was 20, but I kind of do wish I was in my mid to late 30s. That was an awesome. I love, you know, mentally, when I was 38, I don't know if you, any other guys had this. 38, my mind was the sharpest it had ever been, in my mind at least. Maybe I was stupid and I thought I was smart. Who knows? <laughs> I loved being 38. But the fact is, I don't have that much longer. And if the rapture comes, I really don't have that much longer. It's a motivation. But thirdly, to worship him. And to say, God, I want to proskuneo you. I want to bow down and kiss your feet. But I also want to latreo you, because that's my reasonable act of worship. Because of what you've done, because of who I am, because of the promise and the deposit guaranteed in inheritance, because of thy kingdom come, thy will be done, Lord, give me something to do. Give, make me your servant today. And some of you, because of limitations, your primary service is to your kids or to your wife. But always be open to God giving you more grace. De earnestly desire, Paul talked about, the greater. And Lord, would you give me more grace? Because maybe I could reach that person. 
And you'll find that faithful and little, faithful and much, but it's the disposition we're talking about, not the acquisition. It's the attitude towards the thing of saying, God, I want to be your servant. And then you begin to look at your loved ones and you see that they're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And it grieves you. If you're a religious prig, you judge them. But it grieves you and you say, God, how can I help them to see that you're the creator? And if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, they can enjoy those things. But because they're seeking those things, they can't enjoy you. Lord, help me. Let me worship you. I'm your servant. I'm your servant in a practical way, latreo. I'm a servant in an intimate way, proskuneo. And what I would suggest to you is when you go into that intimacy with God, it's from that place that the effectiveness of your ministry touches the world around you. There it is. And God's final cry through his angel, the last message, is fear God. Give him glory because the hour of judgment's come. And worship him because he made the whole thing. God, I pray that you would help these words from a mere man make sense. I pray for any confusion that has taken place that you would bring clarity to it. I pray for anybody that's convicted, Lord, that they would not think that I'm here trying to rub their nose in anything. I'm really not. I want all people to experience the freedom of the children of God. And God, I I pray, maybe here this morning, right now, you're saying, man, I really didn't like that message. I don't know that you did. I didn't notice it on anyone's faces. I didn't. But if you really didn't like the message, don't walk in condemnation, friend. Just simply come to our Lord and say, God, why did that hurt? And maybe you know why it hurts, because you're afraid to trust him. But be honest with him. Just tell him. So, Lord, I pray that you'd heal hearts. You'd forgive sins. You'd wash them in the blood of Jesus. You'd take the words of mere man trying to explain complicated issues and make them simple in the hearts and the ears of these listeners. We give you all praise and all glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.